That's why every time Glenn's talking, Glenn's like, brother. <laughs> I was just saying it. <laughs> then I said this. Is, yeah, we're gonna. That's why Jesus is speak. <laughs> I know. Glenn I know, brings man. us back to Jesus. That's why we need him. Yeah, speaking of which. Otherwise. Yes. Hey, do you got your bifocals on? Wait. Mercy, God. Do not. Yes, yes. Help us to be free and faithful. That was it. Amen. Amen. All right. In Jesus' name, Lord. Welcome to Till We Feast where three pastor friends leading three cross-cultural congregations in Washington, D.C., wrestle with a question each week concerning how the church can be a foretaste of the Feast of God. I'm Russ Whitfield, one of the hosts of this podcast, and I'm joined in the studio by Pastor Glenn Hoberg and Pastor Duke Kwan. What's up, fellas? Hey, man. Doing well. Today's my anniversary. It Your is. Your wedding anniversary? I didn't know that. Yeah. How many Happy years? Birthday. My Happy lady, birthday. My lady friend and I have been married for 32 years. <laughs> 32 30 years? The wife of my youth, wow. man. That's, That's amazing. That's All I know awesome. is she, That's she, amazing. she keeps looking younger and I keep looking like, <laughs> like you know, okay. I may be her daddy. Did they- <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna. Oh, yeah, I'm yeah. gonna look at that. I'm gonna exert some personal maturity and keep on moving. From keep me. on moving. <laughs> keep on moving. That's like, awesome, man. Yeah. yeah. Praise God for 32 years. That's Meg is a woman of extraordinary resilience. And I want you to know how spiritual I am that I'm here <laughs> on my anniversary instead of you know yeah be, being uh, a Proverbs 31 husband. So <laughs> well, we're we, grateful well, for you that. You just gave her a shout out on the podcast. That we right. did. The world knows. Yeah. I mean, You're honoring her, right? Yeah, I mean, Oprah is probably going to hear that pretty soon. Yeah, you know? that, that's she's probably listening until we. Let's move on. Let's move on. It's good, dude. You good? I'm doing good. I'm drinking my green smoothie Look, over here. You gonna get your sugar one way or another? No, it's for my conscience. I'm feeding my conscience. How it's green. Is drinking it, a cup full of sugar. Got, it's a cup of kale. Yeah. Well, kind of. The Lord. I don't taste that. any green. <laughs> it's, it looks like a little mango and pineapple and. All right. If, yeah. I if, it, if it tasted too good, I wouldn't be drinking this. <laughs> Heck yeah. So right. what we got, what we got coming, for today? I'm coming with a question today. All right. Bring, All right, bring it. it. So this has been on my brain mm. for a while. Okay. Mm. Um, so every denomination, every tradition has a view of what a spiritually formed person mm. is like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the tradition I come from. Right. There's a lot of reformed mm. folk, mm-hmm. Westminster Confession, all these different things. Mm-hmm. But we believe in the Catholicity of the church. Yeah. You know, it's almost like when I was a young seminary and I had the view that Jesus was building his church through the apostolic age, mm-hmm. a little bit through Augustine. Mm-hmm. And then he just kind of stopped for a thousand years. And then he started <laughs> during the Reformation. But what nags me is how do I avoid being in a spiritual echo chamber myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's not just theologically. I also have to take in mind that culturally, that theology is coming from a place. Yeah, it yeah. always has come from a place. Mm-hmm. And so I look at my bookshelf and I see a lot mm. of one side of the church mm-hmm. and one cultural expression of that theology. Mm-hmm. I feel stuck there. Mm-hmm. I'd love to hear how you guys work through that. How you think about it? Mm. That's good. What That's you, good. What you think, Duke? Man, it's a good question. 
Um, I'm just mulling over the question itself, mm. right? Because I think it, what you just described, Glenn, is true for all of us, right? Wherever you stand or wherever you're coming from, any tradition and, you know, influences, denominational location, whatever, mm-hmm. you're, you're somewhere and you're going to be naturally limited if yeah. you're only receiving from that one tradition. And, and, and maybe that's not assumed. Maybe that's what we kind of have to unpack a little bit here. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I'm just uh, appreciating the question, still thinking through it. But yeah, what do you got on your mind right away, Russ? I immediately start to think about, okay, what are the, what are the commitments under which I am trying to form my congregation mm-hmm. and mm. where do those ideas come from? Are they representative of that Catholicity, which, you know, for a lot of folks, Catholic is a scary word, yeah, but it's just a compound word from Greek, kataholos, which means according to the whole mm-hmm. of the body, mm-hmm. right? Like the whole church. Yeah. And so we're trying to we're trying to benefit from as much of the church as possible, theoretically. But practically, I feel that same tension where it's, you got the tools that you got and they've been given to you from somewhere. Yeah. And you're going to pull on those resources. And then when you get into the grind of ministry, it's like, you don't feel like you got a whole abundance of time to go out and find fresh resources. Right. So that becomes its own you know, uphill battle. Or learn a new language. Learn a new language. Yeah, yeah. So my first thought is, "Mm, I resonate with that and I have wrestled with it significantly in my ministry journey. And I feel like I've found some footing going forward, but yeah. Yeah. You you know, what's coming to my mind is that the starting point in a lot of ways is even raising the question, which Mm. you are here, Glenn. And it's, the starting point is self-awareness, mm-hmm. right? I mean, even when you talk about cross-cultural engagement and, and learning just even in interpersonal kind of stuff, mm-hmm. the gurus and the people that have walked down the, 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 the road of developing people always talk about step number one is not go out and get to know your neighbor who's different from you. Mm-hmm. From you. you know, mm-hmm. Go out and learn about another culture. Step one is self-awareness. Mm-hmm. Understand oh. that you embody a culture. Understand mm-hmm. that you actually... Uh, are bringing to the relational matrix, you know, who you are and your patterns, your habits, things that you assume to be norms. And Mm -hmm. so in this conversation, I'd say the first step or the first important thing that you're helping us in, Glenn, is to even realize that our different denominational traditions are the resources on our bookshelves actually do embody and bring a certain culture, right? Even before Mm. we think through, well, what does a healthy Catholicity look like mm-hmm. in bringing together different traditions just to know mm-hmm. that the one that you're coming from is from a particular point in history or mm-hmm. is bearing some of the unique dimensions, both good and limitations of a particular cultural vantage point. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right? good. You know, I, so, okay, that's here's good. the deal. Uh, a couple years ago, yeah, I went and got a a certification, a qualification for the intercultural development inventory right. to be a qualified, uh, a qualified uh, um, administrator the, of this. And what it IDI. is, the IDI, which yeah. it, what it is, it is, it's a way of assessing your intercultural competence right. or lack thereof. And they, they create this continuum and it goes from, it starts with, you know, on the, the far left of the continuum is denial. So when you come into cultural difference, what do you do? You deny, you deny all of it, right? Like you, you, you just, you stay in your huddle. This is the denial of the people out there who are right, different. Right. 
that the next phase is polarization, which is an us versus them kind of thing, mm-hmm. right? Like, okay, we have our culture over here, but we're antagonistic toward them over there and they are toward us, polarization. Mm-hmm. Then it's minimization, which is an exclusive focus on the things that we have in common. Mm-hmm. It's a deni- So polarization is a focus on all the difference. Minimization is a focus on all the similarity and a fear of even right. engaging the difference. Right. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, the goal is to get to adaptation. In adaptation, you are not only self-aware, as Duke was talking about, of your own culture, but you're also more aware and have greater facility in adapting who you are without compromising right. who you are. Right, that's key. Yeah, adapting who you are to other folks so that you can collaborate together. Now, that's with culture in general. Yeah. I think that if we think about ecclesial cultures- that's good. This maps on in a very helpful way because you could be in denial, right? Like you just deny that they exist out there and you can do that functionally. You operate as if other Christian communities do not exist. You could approach this from polarization. So it's a us versus them. We have the right theology in toto. They are completely wrong. We have nothing to stand to benefit from them. I can't even find a real positive good word to say about their tradition. Yeah. Our tradition is the bee's knees. Then there are the kumbaya, like, you know, you know, mm. Rodney King, let's all get along, <laughs> you know, and we focus on all the things we share. We try to flatten down difference. And anytime someone tries to raise up difference or assert difference, you take it as a threat to the communion rather than as a benefit. But the goal is for us to have self-awareness about our own tradition, our own theological heritage, and our own spiritual resources and be able to look through the eyes of other traditions and other believers who are committed to the faith once for all delivered over to the saints. And from that vantage point, we can have a healthy uh, collaboration and we can really benefit from the capitalicity of the church. That's very helpful. That's what occurs to me. One thing I like about what you're, you're bringing to the conversation, Russ, is that I think what you're saying in terms of adaptation, so you're rooted in your own tradition, you know who you are, you know the strengths and contributions that your own tradition bring, Mm -hmm. you're aware of that, and yet you're adapting, you're you're engaging Mm -hmm. with other traditions. That's different from a Mm non-denominationalism, right? Mm -hmm. Or a an anti-tradition kind of posture, which yes. which tries to flatten everything out or right. say, look, I, I don't want any, I don't want to identify with any tradition, any, I mean, w- work with me here. What do, yeah. you, what, what do you think? Am I, am I, am I right about that? That uh, what you're describing there is different from just saying the goal is to be non-denominational, so, so ecumenical or so diverse in, in the way that we eclectically draw from different places um, that we don't need to be located in a certain tradition. Yeah, so that's, I love that you brought that. Yeah. And that response would be minimization. Yeah. That, that is yeah. a flattening down of the contours. And honestly, I mean, if you're going to go textual, it is a, I think it's poor stewardship of ecclesial communal gifts that, that are present to be offered. So, you know, like if the, the body image in, in 1 Corinthians 12, it's like every part of the body matters in its unique contribution that it has to offer. Right. And there's a way of of a person in the text saying, you know, well, I'm not a I'm not a hand, so I don't have value. Mm. And then there's a way of us looking at someone else and saying they don't have value. That hand doesn't have value. But the, yeah. the point of the text is that everyone's contribution matters to the whole big picture of what the Lord is doing. And so 
when, when we bring it back to this, the way we get out of minimization is to not fear the differences, but to have a theological and biblical conviction that those differences are, are necessary to the kingdom work. Otherwise, God would not have distributed those gifts to begin with. Yeah, He gave the gifts. He, he creates diversity because that diversity is required for the work that he's called us to. And yeah. I think that that conviction is what I think helps to relieve some of the fears around exploring the difference. Mm. So it's from that place that I think that we can, with gratitude and, and conviction, root ourselves in a particular tradition so long as we don't treat our, our tradition as the end-all be-all of all that God is doing and all that God has done in the world and all that God is going to do. That's good. You know what That's I mean? That's good. Yeah. Glenn, what are you hearing, man? Well, one thing about it, when you went into this discussion of fear, what I thought about was this immense mm. pool we all feel where we want to be right or we want to know we're right mm. because there's a piece in that. Mm. So whether it be politics, a moral view, mm-hmm. there's a certain passivity that we go into and it's out of sort of like a self-survival, mm-hmm. right? Like I'm going to stay in my tradition because I need the security mm. Yes. I need the security that my world, it's sort of like the Pharisees in their worldview, mm. right? Jesus, when you think about what did Jesus do? Mm-hmm. He just like grabbed their world with two hands and he shook it, mm. right? He was just mm-hmm. like shaking it mm. on every. And so in the tradition that we inhabit and come from, there's always that phrase, you know, always reforming, mm-hmm. always reforming. But I think it only goes so far. Mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. always reforming means I'm going deeper and deeper into the same tradition. <laughs> so it's not this idea that like I am, I am willing to enter into the uneasiness mm. of letting other traditions speak into my tradition. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean, as you all said, I jettison whatever's new, I grab it. Yeah. But there's a certain like self-confidence uh, and maybe that's what I, you know, I'm starting to feel more. And I've been feeling it for some time. As I'm preparing my sermon or studying, you turn around and you look at your bookshelf. Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay, <laughs> yeah, right? Because I need help. I, yeah. I really believe, uh, this is another thing, but I do believe there are pastors and learned pastors. But I think we need scholars. Mm-hmm. We need people that have that. Yeah. So I'm going to that resource, and yet I have this uneasiness that mm-hmm. like, man— I can only give mm. what I can receive. You know mm. what I mean? Like, like if I'm not receiving from that wider thing. Mm. And I'd love to hear from you all, like practically mm. how you try to do that. Like try to broaden your your reading or your yeah, resource like list. You're preparing some sort of teaching. Mm. And you know the tradition you come from, but at some point do you stop and go, I need some other voices here. Mm. Yeah, man. Look, I love that reflection. And I think there are a number of complications to it. So when I, when I first like started really rocking hard on cross-cultural and I started having opportunities to talk to other folks around the country about cross-cultural, one of the first things that people started asking me for is what are the books I should be reading? Like who are the authors of color that I should be pursuing? And I was like, let me, let me see what I can do in terms of like compiling a list of different voices that we can trust are orthodox and reliable and true to the faith. And, but you know, from a different cultural perspective. And here's one of the things that occurred to me in that journey. Even that question itself presumes a certain culture. Mm -hmm. 
it presumes a literary culture. Huh. Right. And so, you know, so growing up in the black church, what one of the things that had occurred to me when I went to seminary, it, you know, so I went to seminary and actually heard a professor say that African-Americans have never made a meaningful contribution to theology. Mm. He said that. Mm -hmm. Good night. And he believed that. Mm-hmm. But think about why. Mm. Because a meaningful theological contribution in his mind right. was meant to come through the literary means right. and through right. the- printed, printed pages. Printed pages yeah. and through the mechanism of the academy. Right. Now, let's ask a question. Is that the only place from which we can draw resources? The the book, the, the, the academy? And I think the answer is no, mm. because we have- Oral tradition, right. like the oral tradition existed in the Jewish community, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and eventually a lot of that was enshrined, you know, I believe it's in Midrash, right? Like conversations and, and interpretations of scripture and they, the Jewish oral tradition, it, it existed, right? But then I thought about growing up in a black church and I was like, this is an oral tradition too, mm -hmm. you know? And if we want to grow those resources, what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to get creative and where we look for them. Yeah. And so a lot of creative theologization in the black community happens in the Sunday morning preaching of the word and in the gospel music that was produced by the black church. That's mm -hmm. really good. And so I wonder what other cultures are primarily oral tradition as opposed to literary tradition and how might that give us direction in, in finding new resources? Another thing to say is in our Western world, like we look to the academy, right? Like right. that's the pinnacle. And you mentioned that, and we value scholars and those who have spent significant time digging into a topic. However, what I have discovered in, in really working through the offerings of the global church is that a lot of folks around the world, they don't do theology for the academy. Mm. They do it for the church. Yeah, And so their theological reflections are expressed via confessions and creeds and different ecclesial documents. So if you, so I discovered this most profoundly in doing a lot of research on sexuality. Because my question was, okay, how do we get our hands around and appropriately critique our cultural moment in our place in Western you know, late modern American culture. And because if we're only talking about this issue from within this culture, we're going to, we're not going to hit our blind spots. Right. We're, we're not going to see those. That's right. So you, I went and looked and there were statements from, you know, churches in Africa, like ecclesial documents. Like these are our statements of faith around these issues. And then it's, you know, churches in China and in churches in other, other places. And that ended up being a, a, a a surprise to me. Mm -hmm. I, I was like, oh, I think what I distilled down was we have to look at more than just literary culture. We have to look at oral culture and we have to look at ecclesial culture. Like where do people feel like we need to keep our most significant theological commitments, you know, in protection, right? Where are they? That's good. Duke, you got thoughts on that, man? I mean, I feel like it's related to Russ's point on oral tradition relationships, mm -hmm. just, just straight relationships with- oh believers mm. in other kinds of churches and especially clergy, mm. right? Just being able to engage, talk through things, disagree. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like our learning when it's done in a, uh, in a setting of relational trust, mm. like you're just eating together and hanging together and that sort of thing, then I think you, you take in sort of the, these nuggets of perspective or truth or pastoral wisdom mm. in a different way that the, the delivery system is 
through a meal. It's through laughter. And uh, you're not as suspicious about difference. Yeah. Or you can sort of give the benefit of the doubt of a person mm. who might believe differently from you or that the perspective they're bringing might be unfamiliar to you. Mm. Yeah. But you actually trust that they are sincerely seeking hard after God, right? Mm. And so I, I think that's always been a key thing for me, mm. just like relationships across people of different traditions. Because I, re I really think, you know, if all you're hanging with are people that are just like you theologically yes. or, or denominationally or whatever, you're going to get suspicious of so-called outsiders. Mm. You're going to be resistant to people that challenge your ideas or you're reinforcing mm. uh, the same thing again and again. Mm. And so there, there's the bookshelf thing and there's all these other aspects of, of how we learn and take in, but, but mm. relationship with people um, yeah. from all over the place is a key thing. I want to go back to, I feel like both of you hit this, Russ hitting mm. the thing on the academy, which mm. we can maybe rearticulate that as this is very simplistic to say, you know, mind, heart, will, or whatever, mm -hmm. but, mm. uh, and do your relational thing. I immediately think of all the commandments, which I understand to be all the theology in the Bible fall under the two great relational commandments. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Love God, love mm. your neighbor. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. how do we even, right? If mm. we're not doing theology in the context of covenant mm. relationship, how do we even mm. have anything? Mm -hmm. But that deeper question that I started with, what does a spiritually mature formed person look like? Mm. And it really does kind of beg the question, really, each tradition, right. we could go across Christianity and would say, well, it, this one is by maybe ecstatic gifts. This one is by their ability to exposit the book of Romans. Mm -hmm. <laughs> which one's that? Which, Wait, which one is that? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you can name them. Yeah, I always, say, them. I always yeah. say in our tradition, uh, we're, we're bobblehead foosball. <laughs> Uh, big head, big head, no arms, no body, no body. No but, but you know, but it's kind of like one of the keys into this, and I wonder if you all think this is a, a helpful way to think about it, hmm. and I'm not sure. Hmm. So one event we find recapitulated through Scripture mm -hmm. is the Exodus event. Yes. Mm -hmm. And you find that truth shared in lots of different ways, right? right. You find it shared in historical narrative. Mm -hmm. You find it shared in poetic language. Yeah. You find it shared in prophetic, mm -hmm. apocalyptic language. Yes. You find it just flat out spiritualized in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. So you have all these different ways that truth is coming at you. Yes. And... I feel like the tradition, we've talked about this before, is that I've been most familiar with, that I've come up in, is justification by education, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And even as a preacher, I've had to rethink even the way I preach, mm -hmm. even the way that I pastor communicates sort of like what I believe a formed whole Yes. Person is. Yeah. Yes. So I guess I'd like more of your thoughts on as you think of a spiritually formed person, what needs to be emphasized mm. other than just theology, which we would say it's, you know, important, but yeah. I don't mean to set those at odds. But no, that's that's good. I'm like, if if a person can understand the idea that every church has a set of core values in America and mm. Like for us, it's grace, community, witness, place, calling, renewal. It's too many, but it's. I'm impressed you remember yeah. those. You're the only person that does. <laughs> I had to lock it in. We're going to redo them. Yeah, but like, okay, 
We, that those are core values for us. That doesn't mean that we don't value other biblical ideas that are not on our core value list. Mm-hmm. But these are the things that have, we have found to be central to the work that we feel called to do in D.C., Another church in our very city could have a series of core values where, you know, it could be like worship, peacemaking, whatever. It's, like, we're, it's not like we're, we're not committed to worship or peacemaking. And so I think that maps on to different ecclesial communities. Like there are different things that they focus on and that they're strong at because from their vantage point, that is more central to the teachings of scripture. Yeah, We may not see it at the same level of importance as they do, but but I think that that maps onto how we benefit from mm. other traditions. We recognize they have fronted something yep. in their way of thinking about the faith that is is valuable. And even if we don't prioritize it to the same degree, we can still value it and learn from their deeper reflection on that thing. You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. I think about that. And, and I also think about when, you know, when Duke was talking about real relationships in this whole thing, one of the things I tell my preaching class at RTS is, you know, one of my practices when I write sermons is I imagine different people from my congregation reading over my shoulder while Mm -hmm. I'm prepping my sermon Mm -hmm. and asking me questions. What's that mean? Mm -hmm. From their vantage point, based upon what I know about them pastorally. And that has been transformative for my own preaching. Because if I think about brother so-and-so who's in this life situation, and yeah. he's going, if I'm bringing, trying to put his lens on to look at the text, he's going to ask different questions. That's good. And that's going to yield different results in terms of how I preach the word, how I reflect theologically, and the conclusions that I can bring to bear for the whole community. And so that's good. I found that very helpful in terms of this whole bigger picture. Yeah. Glenn, your, your question around these different competing or sometimes conflicting pictures visions of maturity or, you know, that each tradition kind of has a different angle on that sort of thing. It's true. And and I feel like that's so important for us to kind of go out and be like, oh, that that there actually is a different emphasis. There's a different um, sort of embodiment of the fullness of the Christian faith and Christian theology in different traditions. One thing that comes to my mind, for example, is the way the immigrant church specifically, Mm. I'm more familiar with the Korean American church, Mm. how much service Mm. is emphasized as an aspect of Christian commitment and maturity. And prayer, right? right? And and prayer too, right? So the the, the praxis, the, Mm. the, the practical dimensions of the faith so much so where you're not going to be a leader in the church unless you've gotten your hands dirty, mm. right? Uh, you may not know this or that finer point of theology and doctrine, but if you have not, I mean, listen, these <laughs> days I, I joke that you can tell when someone grew up in the Korean church mm. because they know how to put out a six foot folding table as a, <laughs> as a, as a one man operation. You know, it's like, if you don't know how to grab the thing, pick it up with your feet, you know, you don't yes. know how to come pull out that leg and bang it down yeah. and kind of move that little ring thing underneath there, that sort of thing. And you can see the difference. People mm. that have been raised mm. to put out, folding tables Mm. in the fellowship hall of a church, Mm. right? Mm. And you could say, you know, there's a part of me that's like, I don't want any ordained person that hasn't been putting in, you know, in our church that hasn't been putting in some some time setting up chairs, Uh right? That that dimension of service. Mm -hmm. That's definitely a mark of, uh, I think, Korean American spirituality, Mm. that dimension of service, community participation, Mm -hmm. um, quiet, just 
doing the dirty work. And, mm. and of course, you're doing it because the deacon is like staring you down <laughs> <laughs> or getting mad at you for playing basketball in the parking lot, right? You know, <laughs> get all the kids to, you know, yeah. go grab some chairs, yeah. right? that sort of thing. But that's literally because that is what is mm. a mark of a committed Christian in mm. church community, mm. right? Mm-mm. I love the idea, you know, from my own personal training. One of the things that I do appreciate was a, a framework, pun intended, by John ah, Frame, perspectivalism, <laughs> which is to say that when, when it comes to knowledge, there are transcendent truths. There are norms, right, that we have to take into account from the scriptures, right? But then you have different situations in which those norms need to be worked out, and you have to take account of those situations, But then you have the existential or the personal dynamic, which is who am I as I come to this text and try to acquire this knowledge. And that awareness, like there are transcendent truths and we're all groping at clarity for those truths. But we eventually need to get those truths down into particular situations. How that truth hits in DC is gonna be very different from how that truth may hit in Nepal, right? And so- there's a missionary flexibility to working out the norm, but then you can't leave out the fact that you have to think about who you are, what's your story, how have the wounds that you've received potentially obscured certain truths to you or heightened other truths to you that you understand and other people may not get because they didn't face that, but it's it's a self-awareness in the task of knowing. And so I think that paradigm has been useful to me because tri-perspectivalism was John Frame and Vern Poitras riffing off of a broader uh, epistemological approach called perspectivalism, okay? Which was basically a movement to say, truth cannot be fully apprehended from one single vantage point. You have to look at it from other vantage points. It's like similar to the four gospels. Those are four perspectives. Genesis one through two has two perspectives of the creation account. One Mm -hmm. is more cosmic and one is more Mm -hmm. centered on humanity as the crown gem of God's creation, right? Mm -hmm. So we have perspectivalism in scripture, but I think oftentimes we think that our perspective is totalizing Mm -hmm. and there are no other perspectives that can help us to see this. But you know what that reveals? That reveals that we have a pretty diminished view of God's truth. To think that we have exhausted it. I've often asked people, do you think that John Calvin and Martin Luther and Theodore Beza and John Knox exhausted all there is to say about the person and work of Christ. Mm-hmm. And everyone says, no. And I say, exactly, because his, his excellencies are manifold. So why would you think that they are the final and exhaustive yeah. word theologically on that? Don't you think that ought to energize us to go out and continue to search more to learn all we can about the manifold excellencies of Jesus? That's good. So those are the things that occur to me And I can tell you personally, I have benefited tremendously from tracking down these roads. And I feel like what it has done is allowed me to benefit from the treasures of the the global and historic church Mm -hmm. in terms of what the global and historic church has always agreed upon as the foundations of Christian spirituality. This is all very, very rich. I love the idea, like even going back, Russ, to what you said about where are you looking? Mm. Like, are you, are you basically just looking to a bookshelf mm. right? Mm. for your sort of definition yes. of this? Mm-hmm. Uh, are you treasure hunting? Mm. 
in place. And that sort of op- opens up a lot of stuff. Mm. Like, and, and, and it even sort of convicts me of what am I looking for? Yeah. What am I looking for? The fact that I'm looking at a bookshelf because right. I'm looking for a particular thing. Mm. And so even to take it one step more, it, this question of how do we understand what a spiritually formed person is, is ultimately what we mean by what does it mean to be human, yes. right? yes. And that's where I feel like so much is on the line too, mm. right? When we talk about what it means to be a mature Christian, mm. talking about like your entire life, yeah. your entire person. Mm. And that to me, there's a lot of like self-awareness and self-criticism, I think, still to be done on what does it mean to be human in this theological and cultural tradition I don't know, Duke. You're always I, I, great about crystallizing. No, I like what you're saying because yeah, you're Duke. <laughs> bring it all together. This is good because you're kind of landing at a pretty profound point that what's at stake is whether or not we actually have a biblical anthropology. There you go. Mm. And what we whether or not we have a biblical theology proper, right? Yeah. Like, Russ, what you were saying in terms of is, is our vision of God so small that we think he can be adequately ca- captured mm. in a single tradition or mm. a single author or a single, mm-hmm. you know, kind of bookshelf or whatever. But that's I your think book. you're committing to us a synoptic ecclesiology. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that's good. Look, your next, your next, your next book title. I think yeah. we already, I think we already got it. Yeah, yeah. I think that one's yours, right? That's it, yeah. right there, bruh. Well, what are your some some of your takeaways, guys? As yeah. we wrap this up, what are you learning? What do you think you might apply? I think I don't know where to start. Mm. Meaning. That sounds defeating. Like you guys did a terrible job is you what I'm saying. Glenn. Yeah, yeah, just saying no. <laughs> no, I'm saying in a good way, I feel like, you know, you all have sort of like turned my perspective mm-hmm. facing outward. So I'm facing like a new mission of discovery, mm. which is exciting to me. Am I willing to read song lyrics? Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. You do that. Mm. Yeah. You do that better than nearly Anyone else I know except K Twitty down in Nashville? Shout well, that out might K-20. be that might be helpful. Anyway, that's one thing. I just yeah, I appreciate the lens that y'all provided. I felt like when Glenn was talking, and Glenn was like talking about what am I looking at? Yeah. What I would add to that is an additional layer, which is that that C.S. Lewis letter. Not just what we're looking at, but thinking about what we're looking through. Right to the whole world. Because yeah. all of these things are not just things that we look at. They're lenses that we look through to try and better perceive the reality mm-hmm. of the world. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things I love about Newbegin. You know, when he would so often talk about like, there is a reality. Mm-hmm. And what we're trying to do is more deeply apprehend that consistent reality. And so all of the things that we're using, whether it's a confessional document or a creed or a conversation with a friend or uh, some kind of class, they're lenses that we're looking through. And I think the goal is something like when you go to the eye doctor and they drop down that machine called a foropter and they begin to drop the lenses down They say, which one's clearer? This click or this click. And I'm you're like, always like ah, I don't know. I don't I know. <laughs> Can you do it again? I had an optometrist yell at me once. He's like, you're not doing it right. He got mad at me, mad at me because I kept saying, I don't know. Sorry, I'm ruining your illustrative moment no, here. You know? But, but <laughs> what they're doing, it, it, that they're not just dropping down different lenses. They're dropping down a different shape of lens. Yeah. Because they're trying to get 
the particular shape of that lens that will create the greatest clarity for you. That's right. And so- It's because we all have an, a, a theological astigmatism. Right, right? exactly. <laughs> yeah. And so scriptures are, uh, scriptures are lens, yeah. but the shape of that lens has to be cross-cultural. Let me throw this at you because yeah. you know I've often tried to, when I teach or explain to people the value of theological tradition or confessions like the Westminster mm-hmm. Confession of Faith, which you know, a lot of people these days automatically reject as being too narrow or too whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think the value of traditions is that they are prisms, mm. right? They, they, they uniquely are able to refract the beauty of mm. the light of mm. Christ mm. in the gospel That's That's good, good, bro. in a unique way. Yes. The key though, is that every tradition is able to bring out different colors of the spectrum mm to greater or lesser degrees. So Mm. some traditions are really good. Prisms, Mm -hmm. really good at bringing out the reds. Mm. Other traditions are really good at bringing out the violets. Mm. Other traditions really good at bringing out the greens. That's good. Right? But no one tradition is able to bring out the full spectrum Mm. of the colors of the light of Christ. And so what we need to do then is to gather up them different shaped and colored pieces of glass Mm. And see the light that's being shined forth from all these different traditions around the world and in different places. And the key thing being, though, that glory is given not to the prism themselves. Mm, mm, That's just mm, a piece of glass. mm. But to the beauty of Christ, whose light we seek to see. In my my epiphany on that, it's amazing, Duke, is I want to be a prismer of Christ. (laughs) A prism or a Christ. <laughs> that is well played. We go. always appreciate a good dad joke. On <laughs> I just want to add mine yeah, in yeah, there. And yeah, I yeah. need a prism that brings out the green because we're trying to buy this building. Yeah. <laughs> hint, hint, you, yeah, can yeah. Sell, you can send your gifts into P.O. Box. <laughs> That's right. Look, right. Glenn will send you a prayer cloth. That's right. If you send sow your seed. Touch, touch your earbud right now. Yeah. Touch, reach out your hand. Pray, your prayed over by a real Korean pastor because I don't pray. <laughs> So anyway, <laughs> get the prayers of the righteous. Good. All That's right. Good, man. Well, look, we, uh, we're so grateful uh, mm-hmm. for y'all listening in. I, I want to say on behalf of the three of us, many of you have sent us sweet encouragements. You have been so kind and listening, many encouraging emails uh, as you've engaged. And we just want to say, we don't take it for granted mm-hmm. that you would take your time to listen into the conversations that we're having and just to send an encouragement to us. So we're really grateful for that. Love hearing it. You know, if you're feeling extra generous, we would love for you to get on there and drop a rating or drop a review just to how you experienced the the podcast and and much love to all you out there. Keep pressing on in faith, hope, and love. And we'll look forward to joining you next time on Till We Feast.